Alright, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 25. It's at this time that I usually read the section to you, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to read the section to you to start with. I'm going to read when we get to those sections, each section at a time that we're going to cover. But like I told you last week uh, when we finished, there's something here about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, about Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that I want to take, a, take some time uh, to develop for you. This is actually something God showed me when I was in seminary over 20 years ago. Uh, and it was just an amazing thing that God began to open my eyes to. As you know, I've taught and preached for years and still will continue to do so, that you can't put God into a formula. You can't say this is how God works all the time. But there are principles in His Word. There are patterns that God has. And you need to understand the principles of, of His Word and His statutes and His ways and His precepts, as we've talked about in times past. And so I came to realize as I was studying the Scriptures that if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the way in which He dealt with individuals one-on-one when He was on the earth will most likely be how He deals with me individually or you individually. How How He treated them is how He would treat you and I. Again, there's no formula, but there's a pattern. And so I came to realize that there was a pattern to how Jesus dealt with people on the earth. And I'm going to give you this pattern real quick. Just write it down. It's called Grace, Truth, and Hope. This pattern is grace, truth, and hope. And I'm just going to run through real quickly uh, just some things from Scripture, just uh, for your memory, and then we'll get into our study, just kind of illustrate this. Remember when Jesus went and met the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He was there at noon. She was there at the heat of the day. Now the reason she was there at the heat of the day was she didn't even get along well with the ladies of her day because of her lifestyle. But this interesting thing, King James puts it this way, he must needs go through Jerusalem, I mean through Samaria. And he had to go through Samaria. Why? He had a divine appointment with this woman. And interestingly enough, Jesus deals with grace with her first. When, when everybody else is wanting nothing to do with this woman, Jesus went out of his way to go spend time with her. Now, of course, not only does he... Well, pretty much he says to you, it doesn't matter how you feel about yourself or how other people feel about you. You have value to me. You're worth something to me. And he pursued this woman. At the same time, in this conversation, he deals with truth and the sin that's in her life. And so what you got to understand is in this conversation, he says, go call your husband. And uh, go get your husband. And she said, of course, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. The guy you're living with now, you're not married to. And you've been married five times. So again, as much as Jesus dealt with grace toward her, doesn't matter how you feel or what other people say about you, you have value to me. He doesn't ignore the truth. You know, there's what I call grandparent grace. Have you ever noticed grandparent grace? The things that you used to do when you were a kid that you used to get beat for, your grandkid, the grandkids can do, and the grandparents let it go. You know, he's like running across the middle of the dinner table. Oh, it's okay. She's fine. You know, kind of a thing. And you're thinking, we would lose an arm for that. You know, I'm not talking about grandparent grace. When Jesus deals with grace, his grace also, though, acknowledges sin and deals with the truth. But if you are willing to receive His grace and how He sees you despite how you see yourself or how other people see you, and you are willing to deal with that truth by giving it honestly, confessing it and giving it to Him, you can walk out of there with a fresh start and a new hope. And isn't that what happened with the woman? She not only runs back into the town, the Scripture says she went and told all the men. I have met the Messiah. You'll see that same pattern with Zacchaeus. As Jesus is walking into this town, the crowds were so big, Zacchaeus couldn't see. He was a short person. You remember the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the tree because he wanted to see Jesus. But I want to throw something else out to you. I believe that Zacchaeus was up in the tree looking to see Jesus, not only because he was short, but it was also because he probably knew he was safer in that tree than in that crowd. 
you know anything about Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. He was a Jew who was working for the Romans. And the tax collectors back then were crooks. They worked for the, the enemy, first of all, and they weren't very well liked for that. But also Rome said, look, here's what you are to collect from taxes from everyone, and you have Roman soldiers with you to make sure they pay it. Anything else will come, get, come to you. So Rome could say, for example, you know, you owe $5 tax for everybody. Go collect $5 tax. The, room, the, the, the tax collector would show up and say, um, I'm sorry to say this, but uh, your tax is $10. Everybody knew they were being cheated, but they couldn't do anything because if they didn't pay the tax, the Roman soldiers would throw them in prison. And they hated the tax collectors. So what happens? Jesus comes into town. That crowd of people's all around him. Zacchaeus knows if he even tries to move through that crowd to get to the front to see Jesus, he might get a knife in the back. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. But what does Jesus do? He stops in the middle of that procession, if you will. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he treats him with grace. He actually treats him with incredible grace and he says, I'm eating at your house today. Now, you've got to understand, for a rabbi or a teacher to eat at your house with an incredible honor, in front of all these people, Jesus says, it doesn't matter how you feel about yourself, Zacchaeus, or what other people say, you have value to me and you're worth something and I'm pursuing you. Now, we don't have the conversation in the house recorded in Scripture between Jesus and Zacchaeus, but the Scripture says that at the end of their lunch... Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back everybody four times as much as I stole from them. You know that in that conversation, Jesus dealt with the truth. Grace, it doesn't matter how you feel about yourself or what other people are saying, you have value to me and I'm pursuing you. Now, in order for you to enter into the relationship with me, though, there's an issue of sin that we've got to deal with. And if you're willing to give it to me, you walk out of there with a fresh start and a new hope, just like Zacchaeus. We see another situation one-on-one. Jesus and the rich young ruler. The Bible says that Jesus loved him, had compassion for him, and offers him grace. But then what does he do? He deals with his sin. And he says, after the guy says, what must I do when I hear eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the guy says, I have since my youth. And Jesus says, well, I've summed up the law and the prophets into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're able to keep all the law, which Jesus knew he wasn't able, these two things must be simple for you. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor. That takes care of your neighbor and come follow me. Now in this situation, Jesus deals with the truth of the sin in his life. Does the guy acknowledge his sin and give it to Jesus? No. And he doesn't walk out of there with a fresh start and a new hope, does he? How about the woman caught in the act of adultery? They threw her at Jesus' feet and said, The law says she must be stoned. What does Jesus do? He deals deals with her with grace first. Now, when he then says, those of you without sin, go and sin, I mean, throw the first stone, they all quickly leave, and he turns to her, and he says, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone. He says, well, neither do I condemn you. But let's deal with the sin in your life. Go and don't sin anymore. And again, this lady walked out of there with a fresh start and a new hope. Folks, you see this pattern. Again, the exact specifics, you can't turn it into a formula. But as much as I can tell you, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, I can tell you how He's dealing with you. 
First and foremost, He pursues you and says, it doesn't matter how you feel or what other people say, you have value to me and I'm pursuing you. Secondly, we got to deal with an issue in your life. It's called sin. And if you're willing to give it to me, I can send you out of here with a fresh start and a new hope. But not only that, not only in salvation does He do that, He continues to pursue us in that way. In your daily relationship with Jesus, now that you've been born again, He continually sees you every day and says, you have value to me and I'm pursuing you. I want you to let me have control of your life and not you be in control of your life. That's that battle we all struggle against sin. And even though we've been forgiven of our sins, we still struggle with it. But if we're willing to give it to Him, confess it and say, Lord, you, you take it. He sends us out with a fresh start and a new hope. So I just want to have you just kind of lift God, the Spirit of God and med- have you meditate on that. Let the Spirit of God speak to your heart. If He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the way He dealt with individuals is how He deals with us today. And so Satan wants to come in and say, God's mad. He's waiting on you. No, Jesus pursues us with grace. He will eventually deal with sin and the truth. But if we're willing to give it to Him, we can leave with a fresh start and a new hope. And that's your little sermonette left over from chapter, chapter 13, verse 8. And let's get into our study now of chapter 13, verses 9 and following. I'm going to read to you verses 9 through 14. The Hebrew writer says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange, teaching, strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Now there is a lot here, and once we kind of start diving into this, it will make a whole lot more sense. Uh, First of all, he says, watch out for anyone who teaches you that you need to do anything to earn God's favor. You see how there were those who had strange teachings and how that they were, uh, they were to eat ceremonial foods and then God would be more pleased with them. And all through the Scriptures you see this struggle going on in the New Testament and the teaching and saying watch out for those who try to say that you can earn points with God by what you do or what you don't do. Uh, let me give, give you a couple examples. Put a bookmark here and go to 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, look closely at what it says here. It says, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Alright, we're going to lay a foundation here from a bunch of different scriptures. Food doesn't bring us near to God, and we're no worse if we don't eat, no better if we do. Here in this passage, it's talking about food that was sacrificed to idols, and whether you should eat it or not, and all this kind of stuff. And Paul lays out a a theological uh, doctrine here of the fact of, look, whether you eat it or don't eat it doesn't make you closer or further from God. What has made us close to God and irrevocably unseparable? I can't even say it. You can't be separated from God. What has brought us to Him? Jesus' sacrifice for sin, and that alone. Anything you try to add to that that would make you closer to God or maybe feel like you're further away from God 
is not what the Bible teaches. That's why back in Hebrews he says, it's good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which, as he says, are of no value to those who eat them. And we're going to get to this altar thing in just a second. So understand, you have already been made right with God. You're at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. When He forgave your sins, put His Spirit within you to seal you as His, you are in Christ already. Now, there are times, though, that Satan comes and says, well, boy, you're really separated from God now. He's mad at you or whatever. No, things you do or don't, don't make a difference to that. You have been made right through Jesus Christ. Go to Romans 14. We'll see this clarified a little bit more. Verses 17 and 18. Romans 14, verses 17 and 18. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let me read it again. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let me take you to one more place. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Verses 16-23. Chapter 2 of Colossians verse 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Again, Paul here in this section goes on and says, Look, folks, you got to understand, you have been, through faith in Jesus Christ, not only put in Christ, but you have now been separated from the basic principles of this world. In the past, you tried to get to God by things you did, but we know now that it's not by our works, but by grace through faith that we're made right with God. And he said, be careful of anyone that teaches that you can get closer to God or further from God by what you eat or what you drink. In other words, there were those who were teaching, and go back here to Hebrews chapter 13, that there were certain kind of ceremonial foods. You remember, who was the Hebrew writer talking to? He's talking to Jewish Christians who'd come out of Judaism into Christianity. Now remember, in their heritage as Jews, there were things that they were to eat, and things that were clean, and things that were unclean. And God was using those all as a picture of what was to come in Jesus Christ. And then what happened is, they became believers in faith through faith in Jesus' sacrifice for their sins. They put their faith in Jesus and not in their own efforts. But certain teachers started to creep into that community and say, yeah, but you still kind of need to do this and do that to be close to God. There are still some ceremonial things you need to practice. All through the scriptures that I've just read to you, that they had been teaching that's not the case. And so, again, when we try to earn God's righteousness, we reject grace. 
I'm going to say it again. When we try to earn God's righteousness, we reject grace. Remember again the older brother in the prodigal son story. When the father shows unbelievable grace to the younger brother who hadn't earned it, he had maybe in our estimation, everybody else's estimation, lost it because of the way he had lived and he had spent all of his money and acted unworthy. When he came home and just said, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but would you let me come home? The father threw a party. The older brother got very indignant and said to the father when the father sent servants to invite him to come to the party, he said, look, all these years I've slaved for you. In other words, I've been doing everything right and it hasn't seemed to count for much. You give me no points here. This son of yours who just doesn't even live worthily to be called your son, you're going to throw a party for him? And me, who has worked real hard to earn your approval? I've not disobeyed an order, he actually says in the story. I've done everything right. How come I'm not getting all this reward, all this honor? And the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. In other words, it's always been there. You're trying to earn it. It's only received by faith. And we have a tendency at times to fall back in, even though we've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, fall back into that pattern of thinking that doing certain things will bring us closer to God. Now, before we go into... Yeah, I'm going to come back to this altar thing, but I want want to jump ahead in my notes to something. Some people think that maybe in here there is a picture of the Lord's Supper. That maybe some were teaching that in eating of the Lord's Supper or the Koinonia meal, you know, you know, they would regularly partake of the bread and the, the, the cup. That some were teaching that that would bring you closer to God. And those of you who have grown up in different denominations probably know that there are some denominations out there that teach that when you eat of that bread and you drink of that cup, you are brought closer to God. And that's why they feel like they have to go to Mass or they have to, you know, go do the ceremonial thing because in the eating and the drinking, they are brought closer to God. Whether or not the Hebrew writer is actually dealing with that or not, we don't really know. We really don't. But let me also tell you this. When we partake of the Lord's Supper or communion is whatever you want to call it, we do nothing more than remember what He has done and proclaim what He has done. Whether you take the Lord's Supper or don't take the Lord's Supper, you're not closer to God or further away from God. Sometimes we feel like we're closer to God because we took the Lord's Supper. And don't fall for that. You're not. And let me show you what the Scripture says about that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this how? In remembrance of Me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now let me ask you a couple of simple questions. Does the Bible say how often we're to take the Lord's Supper? No. Nowhere does it say how often we're to take it. 
It just says, as often as you do it, whenever you do it, you're to do it with two things in mind. One, as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're doing it to remember what He's done. And you're also at the same time, same time proclaiming His death. You're publicly saying, I have received forgiveness through Jesus Christ. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. You're proclaiming His death until He comes. That's all that the Lord's Supper is. That's all the communion is. But there are some that think that in the eating of it, something supernatural happens. Something special happens and you're brought closer to God because you ate of it. Some denominations teach that it becomes the body and the blood when the priest waves their hand over it. And then you're actually taking the body and blood and you're receiving more of Jesus. There are some denominations that think it changes when it crosses your lips and it goes down at that time and all these types of things. Folks, whether or not the Hebrew writer is dealing with this type of teaching in the church, I don't know. But I'm going to just say this to you. Don't think that anything will bring you closer to God. You are already close. You've already been born again. Now, it's a matter of whether or not you will take advantage of all that is there available to you. And when God says to you, my child, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. How is it received? Through good works? Through working hard? Through reading your Bible? Through praying? How is it received? Through faith. Believing that it's yours. Believing that you're His child. Believing that you're already in good standing and coming to Him in faith. Oh, and by the way, when you come to Him in faith, how does He deal with you? With grace. And then truth. And then send you out with a fresh start and new hope. You didn't know that was going to tie in, did you? Neither did I. Alright, now. Let's now look at what He says here, though. He says... uh, He said, we have an altar from which those who minister at the table have no right to eat. Do you see that? Now, in order to understand what he's saying here, you've got to understand what he's talking about. You see, there were a lot of different sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament that the Bible taught. There were pictures of Christ. And a lot of those sacrifices, when they were to come and offer the sacrifice... The priests were to get some of that sacrifice, weren't they? Remember, they were to take a portion for themselves and so on. But there was one sacrifice that the priests were not allowed to eat. Does anybody know which one that was? Day of atonement. The Day of Atonement. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 16. There were many sacrifices they were allowed to have some of the meat. But on the Day of Atonement, they were not. Leviticus chapter 16. We look at verses 27 through 34. Leviticus 16, 27 through 34. It says, The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance 
The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and for all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, as we've been studying Hebrews, we've been seeing the Hebrew writer refer back to this Day of Atonement sacrifice. And remember how the priests had to sprinkle blood on everything on their way in, and they were only allowed in that one most holy place of the Holy of Holies once a year, and, and all. But this sacrifice, the blood of the bull and the goats that was sacrificed for the Day of Atonement, they were not allowed to eat of it. They were to take all that was left and take it outside the camp and burn it completely. Now, now go back and read with me Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Now, this Day of Atonement sacrifice was a picture of what Jesus has done once for all through his sacrifice. Now, the difference though is, those priests were not allowed to eat of that sacrifice, but you and I are. You and I are allowed to eat of that sacrifice. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. Folks, they weren't allowed to eat of that sacrifice, but the sacrifice that it was pointing to, we have an altar to eat from that they're not able to. In other words... We have the ability now to go into the presence of God by faith and, if you will, receive life, sustenance from Jesus Himself. The sacrifice for sins once for all isn't something that is so holy we can have nothing to do with. We actually can go into His presence. Now, now He's going somewhere, so stick with me. In other words, if you and I can partake of Jesus Himself... If we have an altar to eat from that they're not worthy and they're not able to eat from, why in the world would you think that eating some piece of bread or drinking some special food is going to bring you closer when you can go to the real McCoy? Do you understand the difference? It's foolish for anybody to think that you can do something or eat of something that will bring you closer to God when you can go to Jesus Himself. Do you see it? Folks, how silly is it to think about, well, I'm closer to God because I took of the Lord's Supper. You can go right to Jesus. You don't have to go to the Lord's Supper table. Why do we go to the Lord's Supper table? To remind us of what He's done. To proclaim what He's done. That's it. Don't think it's going to make you more holy. I'm mad at the preacher. We haven't taken the Lord's Supper in a while and I just don't feel as close to God. You ever heard people say that? I was pastor for 20 plus years. I've heard it. Pastor, we haven't had Lord's Supper enough. I'm just not feeling close to God. We need to have it more. Now, we may need to have it more, but if you think that's going to bring you closer to God, you missed it. 
we have an altar to eat from that they weren't allowed to. Oh, and by the way, he was sacrificed where? Outside the camp. And he was disgraced. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but in the picture of him being sacrificed outside the city, it was a rejection. The Jews, when the Pharaoh, I'm sorry, when, when uh, Pilate put above his cross, King of the Jews, they said, Oh, no, no, don't write that. Don't write. No, no, what you need to write is, he says he's the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, What I've written, I've written. But in his being sacrificed outside the city, it was a rejection of Jesus Christ. They wanted nothing to do with him. What was happening to these Jewish Christians now that they had put their faith in Jesus Christ? They were being rejected. They were being shunned. They were losing their possessions. Their family was disowning them. They were going through some persecution for their faith. And the Hebrew writer says, look, the one that we get to eat from was sacrificed outside the city. Let's go out there with them. You're going to be rejected? You're going to be rejected. Let's just go out there with them. Let's just run to Him. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's go get what you need from Him. Don't fall prey to any strange teaching that says that there are other ways for you to get closer to God. Folks, it is only by faith. Let me read verse 9 again. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by what? Grace. How is grace received, folks? By faith. Grace is received by faith. Questions before we move on to the next section? All right. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. People say, they've asked me in the times past recently, Jim, how come, you, how come you think God likes you so much? I said, because it's always been true and now I believe it. <laughs> Honestly, it's made the big difference in my life. People that have known me for years, I used to always be tiptoeing whether I did the right thing. Are you happy with me now? Are you happy with me now? Are you happy with me now? Did I do the right thing? Have I read my Bible? Did I pray enough? Finally, I came to realize who I am in Christ, and I believe it. And I'm receiving it by faith on a daily basis. And you know what? He likes me. I could tell you more stories, but you don't have time for it. But verses 15 and 16, I also don't want to make you jealous. Some of you aren't mature enough to handle his goodness to me. So. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. And I'm just going to say that real quick about what I just said. You know what's sad? Is when God does bless us, we're afraid to tell other Christians. Isn't that sad? Well, I wish I could get to have things like that. Don't we hear that stuff? Yet the Bible says in Corinthians that when one part rejoices, we're to rejoice with them. If one part suffers, we're to suffer with them. But when God blesses us, we, we don't, we're afraid to tell anybody. And shouldn't we be having the testimony every day? Oh, son. Actually, if we really understood, we'd be all testifying every day if we knew what to look for and how to recognize it. The sad thing is that when bad stuff happens, we want to tell everybody. We feel like we get comfort through our suffering. But man, why don't you just talk about how good he is too? But that's another study for another time. Verses 15 and 16, I've threatened it three times. Here we go. Through Jesus, listen, through Jesus, I'm going to say it again so you don't miss this. Through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now he's just said that we don't need to sacrifice for our sins. But now he goes and says, but there are some sacrifices we can offer. 
And these sacrifices are thanksgiving and praise. So what I want to do real quick is I want to take you back to Isaiah 43 and then compare that with 1 Peter chapter 2. So put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Go to Isaiah 43 and look at verses 18 through 21. Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 21. God is speaking to the nation of Israel. It says, Forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. That'll preach right by itself. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland. To give drink to my, cho- my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Alright? Here God's speaking to the nation of Israel. But in this speaking to the nation of Israel, there's something we can glean from it. Over the years, unfortunately, too many of us have just tried to say, well, that means the church now. No, this is still speaking to Israel. And one day, these words are going to make sense to Israel, and they too are going to be brought from the pain of the former things into the new thing that He's got planned for them. He's going to make streams in the desert. It's, it's going to be an amazing day. And they are going to proclaim His praise. But even though this was written to them, there are some principles here and some truths for us as well. Because remember, we have been grafted in for a time to the nation of Israel. And God even says that we're to be experiencing right now in the life we have as believers in Jesus Christ, not under law but under grace, some of the joys and the experience that are coming to the nation of Israel down the road, God is using the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, envious. So we're to be partaking of what is coming to them one day. To the point that they would say, boy, I really would like that kind of relationship with God. And God says, it's yours available by faith just like it was for them. But... The people I formed for myself that they may what? Proclaim my praise. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may what? Declare Declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, we don't have to sacrifice for our sins anymore, because that has been taken care of through Jesus Christ. But we are to bring a sacrifice of praise. Now, why is that considered a sacrifice? Any ideas? We're still in the flesh, that's why. We want to be praised. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done is not easily formed on our lips if we, went, if we actually thought about it. We don't want His kingdom, we want our kingdom. And folks, to be honest with you, you have to daily renew your mind. You have to offer your bodies as living sacrifices because our flesh still wants to be in charge. But 
In the midst of whatever it is you're going through, because we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, that God puts us through stuff to mold us and to shape us as His children. When your flesh wants to say God's not good, or where is God? Through Jesus, if we really understand our position and who we are and how He sees us, we are to declare His praises sacrificially, even in the midst of the times you don't understand what He's doing. We are to how often offer this sacrifice of praise? The Scripture said what? Continually offer this sacrifice of praise. Again, how? Through Jesus. The only way I can continually praise God is to continually renew my mind as to who I am and what He's done. And folks, I have to go back daily, and I pray you do as well, I have to go back daily to the cross. Because let me ask you an honest question. Are there not times in our life that you wonder if God loves you? Are there not times where you wonder if He's good? Yes, we have to. But you can never ask or never wonder if you look at whatever you're going through, through the cross. God demonstrated His love for us that while we were sinners and His enemy and powerless. Oh, and by the way, if you've got your enemy powerless, that's when you're supposed to just destroy them. When we were powerless and we were His enemy and we were sinners, Christ died for us. If God gave us His Son while we were His enemy, how much more? The Scripture says. So yes, right now I may not understand what's going on. I may not understand why this is happening. I don't understand why the doctor said cancer. I don't understand why I lost my job. I don't understand why this child is not responding. But you know what? Through Jesus, I'm going to offer a sacrifice to Him of praise. And I'm going to say, you know what? You're worth it. You're worthy. You're good. Is your God able to rescue you from this fire? Nebuchadnezzar said, they said, yes, He's able. If He will or not, we don't know. But we're sticking with Him. I just want to challenge you to not think that you have to offer sacrifices for your sin. No, that's been taken care of. But continually offer through Jesus sacrifice of praise. Let me give you another example. Go to Psalm 50. There's actually a picture here in Psalm 50 of what we've been talking about. God all along never thought that the blood of bulls and goats were going to take away sin. Psalm chapter 50, look at verses 9 through 15. Look what God says. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that's in it. Remember Acts 17.25, God's not served by human hands if He needed anything. He says in verse 13, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon Me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you and you will honor Me. In other words, God's saying to them, look, you keep thinking that I'll come to you if you do these sacrifices of bulls and goats. You still don't get it. The bulls and the goats are a picture of something. I don't need the bulls and the goats. I don't drink their blood. I don't don't need that. It's just a picture. 
What I'm really looking for is a heart that really trusts in me in faith. Thank me. Praise me. Come to me and I will take care of all you. Again, here's a picture of salvation by faith, not of works. So, Christians, since you have an altar to eat from that they weren't worthy to eat from, or enabled to work from, eat from, since you can go straight to Him, why don't you call out to Him in faith on a daily basis? Thanking Him and praising Him for what you do know. We spend more time on what we don't know, don't we? If you've been to any Bible studies, as I travel around the country and in different parts of the world, and because of the fact that God's blessed me with a pretty good knowledge of the Word of God, uh, it becomes evident in some of these places, and people say, Jim, would you mind answering, asking, answering some questions? I have some Bible questions. I say, sure. Inevitably, it's always about the stuff we don't know. We spend all our time trying to answer the things we don't know instead of dealing with the things that we do know. So folks, if there's stuff you don't know, Trust that if you're to know, God will tell you. Until then, continually through Jesus, renew your mind every day to the fact that it's because of His cross He's proven how much He loves me. And because of that, I can look at whatever it is now I'm going through, through those lenses, and it doesn't look so bad. Or it doesn't look as scary, or it doesn't confuse me as much as it may have in the past. And I'm going to worship Him and praise Him. Go to Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll look at verses 17 through 25. Now this is the last section here. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden for you. That, for, so that would mean of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, I want you to see something that you probably missed here in this last section, and I don't want you to miss it. In this last section here, he puts two very important concepts together. And a lot of times we've missed it. And I'll be honest with you, I missed it until I took the time to really slowly plod through and study this. He puts two very important concepts together. The first one is this, the need to obey and pray for godly Christian, our godly Christian leaders. Now listen again, the need to obey and pray for our godly Christian leaders. Those who have been given the spiritual authority over us and the responsibility as overseers. And we're going to look at that in a second. And here's the second thing that he puts in here. The need to rely on Jesus and not your godly Christian leaders. I'm going to say that again. He tells us, number one, to, the, about the need to obey and pray for their godly Christian leaders and the need to rely on Jesus and not your godly Christian leaders. And I'm going to pull that out of here for you. So what I want to do real quick, because I, I need to look at five Scripture passages in the time we have left. And so get your fingers loose. I want to lay this foundation. It's a study that we may have to deal with later on, or if you want to talk about it later on, we can. But there's something that I believe without question the church today has missed, and it's all throughout the Scriptures, that God has designed a leadership structure in the church 
church, what I call parental type of authority in the church, we've unfortunately moved it to what we call congregational government, where everybody gets an equal vote and we all have a say in what goes on. And as much as I believe the Bible teaches that everyone should have an input, the Bible does not give the authority to everyone. The Bible gives the authority to certain men that God has chosen and equipped to be the leaders. And I'm just going to show you five passages that will begin to show you what I'm talking about. All right. But again, just like in the home, you have God has designed a mom and dad who are ultimately responsible for the direction of the church. In a godly family, mom and dad will say, where do you want to go for dinner? Where would you like to go on vacation? In a godly family, do the kids make the final call? No, because you'd be eating ice cream every night, right? But... God has put together a healthy family model. And also within the parental leadership, you have the husband who's head of the home. Is it a healthy model if the husband makes all the decisions and the wife has no input? No. But if need be, God has designed that among the elders in the home, if you will, God has put the husband as the head of the home. But in a healthy home, they all work together and everybody has their input. But ultimately, God has put that type of authority in the home. I believe without question that the Bible teaches that God has designed that type of leadership in our churches as well. But over the years, we've gone away from that, and everybody has an equal say. And it's, it's, it's a bad design. Look at what he says. Obey your leaders. Submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them. So that their work will be a joy and not a burden for you. And folks, let me just tell you, most now in most of your churches, if you're congregationally governed, who has authority over you? Who are you to obey? Nobody. Look with me real quick at James chapter 3, verse 1. You're, you're in Hebrews, turn over to the next book. James chapter 3, look at verse 1. I'm going to lay a quick foundation of this leadership that God has designed. It says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you... Know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. God is going to hold people like myself in higher accountability when it comes on the day of judgment. Remember the Bible says, to whom much has been given, much will be required. And because I stand here or sit and say, thus says the Lord on a regular basis, and I'm speaking for God from His Word, I understand that God will hold me accountable for everything I say which makes me study and pray and make sure that I'm doing what it is under His direction and not in my own desire. So as I share with you about this elder thing, don't think, well, that's just Jim's pet peeve. Folks, I wouldn't go here if it wasn't in the Scriptures. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 12 through 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. And by the way, please be writing these scriptures down so you can go back and wrestle with them yourselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. It says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are what? Over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in, high, in the highest regard in love because of their work. Not because... I had one man tell me one time when I was preaching on this. He said, Jim, respect is earned. I said, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that respect is to be given because of the position that God has given them. Whether they earned it or not isn't the issue. Now, yes, that would make it easier to follow somebody. But if the Bible says that I'm to respect him even though I don't respect him, I'm to respect him because of the position. And hold them in highest regard because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Go to 1 Timothy. You're in 1 Thessalonians. Just keep turning to the right. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, 
And by the way, you're going to see when I get to Peter that pastor, overseer, shepherd, elder are all interchangeable terms. Those who have been given the responsibility to be in the spiritual authority in the church. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with the outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Then it goes on to say deacons likewise and goes to the qualifications for those who are going to serve in that capacity. And that's different. There's a different role than deacon and elder, overseer. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 4. You'll see all these terms interchangeable here in 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You see again, shepherd, overseer, elder, they're all interchangeable. One last place. Go to Titus. Go back in the T section. Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. Paul says, as he writes to Titus, he says in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good and who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Folks, here's just one small sampling of the Scriptures that show that God has designed parental-type authority in the church. Now, some of you in here, because we come from many different churches, have a church that has an elder leadership model. And guess what? You probably are real glad because you don't even know what's going on and you don't care. I come to find out over the years, the less that people actually get involved in the workings of the church, the happier they be and the better they serve. Well, we spend most of our time sitting around talking about church. Told a group of men that I spoke to today, under God's direction, I wasn't planning on going there. I just felt like God was telling me, go home and don't talk about church anymore. You go back and you spend time with Jesus and you get to know Jesus and you fall in love with Jesus and you stop talking about church. And you'll find God do some amazing things in your life. Part of the reason is God has designed certain people to have that responsibility of the oversight of the church. And when you were kids, you always wanted to you know, be in charge, didn't you? And then your parents would say things like this, okay, you want to get the job, you want to pay the bills, and you'd go, oh, no, no, never mind. You don't want what you think you want, folks, if you're not called by God to be an overseer. 
You don't want it. Obey your leaders. Hold them in high regard because of their work. It'll be better for you. And it's in God's Word. Many places. Well, that Bible deals with that as well. This is talking about in the church. In, in, in Romans 13, the Scripture says the same thing, that we're to respect those who are over us, and we're to, hold, we're to pray for them, we're to obey them as well. Now, we have in our, in our system here, I know it's hard, in our system though, we have ways that we can be involved in the political process to hopefully get people that we would rather see in office in office. But for the most part, we are to obey those who are in charge over us because God's given them that authority for a reason. And as long as we obey the laws, we shouldn't fear them. Right. And of course, you, 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 as Becky's saying here, as long as the laws they pass aren't against God's word, of course, as well, as you hopefully understand, if it comes between God's word and the laws of the land, like right now in our military, today, the don't ask, don't tell thing was repealed. It's been coming. It's official today. And I also read that as soon as it became official, one naval officer married his partner. Like that. And the chaplains, and be praying for our chaplains that know the Lord. The chaplains are really having a rough time right now because they're having to decide, am I to marry these two guys or am I to stand with what I believe the Bible says is true? And they have been told by their generals and their commanders, they have been told either do what the law says or retire. And they're having to decide whether they're going to obey God or they're going to obey the law of the land. Of course, when the government makes laws that are contrary to the Scripture, we better choose God. Now, switch back? We hope. We hope. Again, I don't know how that all works, but we can pray for that. Now, let me wrap up with this here, though. Listen closely. I've just laid this foundation here. As valuable and necessary as these men are in the life of the church... They should be pointing people to Jesus and not replacing Jesus in the lives of His children. Look at what he says here. After he says, pray for them and pray for us, obey them and pray for us, he then says, look closely how it's worded here in verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you. Now, because there's that big description of God and Jesus in there, let me just jump to you from verse 20 to verse 21. May the God of peace, verse 21, equip you. Now, God has given us some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. But ultimately, who's going to really equip you? Jesus Himself who lives within you, who gives you the power to live out whatever it is. Too many of us have allowed that man of God to replace our relationship with Jesus. When trouble comes, I get so tired of hearing, I need my pastor. You've got Jesus. But too many pastors love the fact that their name's on the side of the church or on the bus. And they want the attention and they want that. No, no, no. He says, obey your leaders and pray for us, but may God equip you with everything good for doing His will. And look closely, and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, you are to obey and pray for those whom God has given you and authority over you in the church, but don't ever let them replace your relationship with Jesus because everything you need you have in Christ. God uses people like us to point you to Him. 
If I'm not pointing you to Him, but I'm pointing you to follow me or to do get you get whatever you get from me, I'm doing wrong. I'm to be pointing you to Him. Yes, ma'am. You've already got everything you need. I pray that you have a man of God in your pulpit who preaches the word with power and authority under the power of the Spirit. But you know what? If he doesn't, you still have the ability to eat. Then he wraps up and he says in verse 22, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation for I've only written you a short letter. And I went and looked at when we started. Did you know when we started? August 24th, 2010, we started studying this book. Aren't we glad he only wrote a short letter? It's been over a year of studying the book of Hebrews. And you know what? We could start over and see a whole bunch more. The Word is alive. And folks, I want to thank you for coming and being a part of this. And I just want to pray as we close to just worship the Lord for all that He's taught us in this study of Hebrews. Come back next week as we deal with our biblical attitude toward the return of Jesus Christ. And then we'll start the week after that in First and Second Peter. Father, all I just want to do is just say, wow, and you're awesome. And thank you. Lord, I have had the joy of, of just diving into this book, which of course would cause me to dive into the rest of your book to study and allow you to show me things and help me see things I've never seen before. And Father, I thank you for those that come from all these different churches and and come to this study on Tuesday nights and what you're doing. But Lord, as I have just said, my prayer is that they would not be following Jim, but you would be using Jim to point them to you. And Lord, I thank you that that's happening. Father, I thank you for a group of people who have a hunger for your word and want to study it for themselves and wrestle with it. I love looking at out at the group of folks and their Bibles open and the pages torn and curled and marked up. Father, thank you for what you've given us in your word and the privilege of being able to be here to study it here in America. And Lord, thank you for the fact that you've shown us in the study of Hebrews that you are greater than Moses. You're greater than, than the angels. You are, you are all we need, Jesus. And... You've already done everything for us. We just need to receive it daily by faith. Father, forgive us and keep us from falling back into legalism and trying to earn Your approval. That's our default mode. But Lord, may we daily renew our minds and look at everything through what You have already done through the cross. And may we rest in that and praise You and worship You. And we look forward to the day when we just keep doing it without this flesh that pulls us away from You. In your name we pray. Amen.